together. Lord, we are here this morning to uh, look into your word, to discuss, to learn about, to ponder your sovereignty, particularly as it relates to our salvation. Lord, first we we affirm and, and uh, proclaim that you are sovereign, that you are in charge of all things. Nothing is beyond your reach. Nothing is beyond your awareness. And nothing is beyond your control. And we are finite and we don't readily grasp that when we look at a storm in the Philippines. Look at hardship in life when we look at the death of loved ones. But your word affirms that it's true. And so we cling to that. And we begin to find comfort knowing that you, good God, good, holy, loving God, that you are sovereign also. And so nothing is beyond you. And Romans 8.28 really is true that you cause all things to work together for good for those who loved you, love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, this morning as we uh, come to this discussion of your sovereignty and salvation, we uh, quickly admit that we need your help. This is an enormous subject and there are great depths here to, to plumb and... Um, we're going to try and do it in, in one session. So, Lord, we ask for your help. I ask for your help. Lord, I have notes in front of me and I have ideas in my head, but, uh, Lord, I very quickly uh, turn these over to you as um, th- that you can, you can edit uh, as you see fit. I pray that this morning you would speak to us uh, the things that you'd have us learn, that we would be encouraged, that we would be deepened, in our understanding and in our knowledge of salvation. And indeed, Lord, that you would even use it to save some this morning. So, Lord, we commit our time to you. Pray that you would be lifted up, that you would be magnified, that you would be made much of in our time here this morning. We trust you and pray for your spirit's work. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this is our uh, second part of our study that we've been doing on the sovereignty of God in salvation. And uh, the study of salvation or soteriology, of course, is an enormous, enormous subject. And uh, so, we're doing a a very quick glimpse during our time here. And, um, of course, we we will be studying this for a, a very long time in our Christian lives, and we'll be learning new things about it, even... Uh, when we're in heaven, the Lord will be showing us new things. So, um, but we're going to try in the next few minutes to, to cover some, some good ground and some lear- to learn some things from God's word that he speaks to us about salvation that we can grasp and hold on to and cling to and uh, that will help us in our own lives. Before we get rolling on today's message, though, I want to review last week's message. Because if we don't remember what we talked about last week, if we don't if we don't keep in our minds the plight of mankind, the depravity of mankind, then today's message either won't make sense or it won't be palatable. I don't think we'll accept it if we forget last week. So I want to review what we talked about last week, specifically regarding man's condition, man's depravity. So these are our, our, our points from last week. 
First of all, man is depraved in his understanding, in his will, in his actions, and in his heart. He has no fear of God. Second, man is morally and spiritually unable because he's dead and follows Satan's lead and is thus a child of wrath. But the good news, thirdly, but God, because of his rich mercy and great love, made us alive, gave us heaven, and prepared work for us to do. So that's a review of last week. I want us to keep that in mind. Man's depraved condition and exactly what that resulted in. What that resulted in. Death, being being unable to respond. Remind ourselves also what we talked about several weeks ago, and we've talked about this quite a bit, but we talked several weeks ago about God's self-existence and the fact that he doesn't, he's not obligated to mankind in any way. He's self-existent. He doesn't, he doesn't owe anything to us. He's self-contained, self-existent. He's eternal. He's not obligated to us or obligated to save anyone at all except for the obligations he puts on himself. He's not obligated to save anyone at all. And finally, man left to himself, no matter what he is offered, would nevertheless remain in unbelief and rebellion against God. Remember we talked about natural ability and inability? I can't jump and touch the roof because my legs are not that strong. No man's legs are that strong. I don't have the mechanics to be able to do that. I'm naturally unable. Versus moral inability, which is, I want something else more than I want this thing. So much more that I will never choose this thing. And in our discussion, we were talking specifically about salvation, about following after God. And man is naturally able. He has the ability, the function, the capacity, the the organ, the mechanics to choose God naturally. But morally, he doesn't want to. And will never want to left to himself. That's the message of scripture left to himself. He never will. He always has a greater desire to be king himself than to make Jesus king always. And so we end up with man choosing himself. Man is morally unable though. He's naturally able. So he would continue no matter what is offered him. He will continue in rebellion and in unbelief. All right. So that's the reminder uh, overview of, of last week, which was a kind of a, a heavy message for the, for the majority of it. And I want us to start in that condition and remember those things because it'll make more sense out of today's message. If we forget last week, today doesn't make it a lot of sense. doesn't make a lot of sense. So I want to rem- want us to remember those things. So with that overview in mind, let's look at God's sovereign work in salvation. First of all, I'd like you to uh, turn to John chapter 17, John chapter 17. We're going to be in various passages today. So if you have a pen or pencil, you're going to want to take notes because we're going to cover a lot and they're really rich passages and we're going to go relatively quickly through them. Before we get to our John 17, I I want us to think back through the Old Testament 
we don't have to think through the whole thing, but just think back in the Old Testament. Who is the nation of Israel? They're God's chosen people, right? They're, they're his chosen people, his chosen ones. It's not news to us when we think about the Old Testament at all that the nation of Israel is God's chosen people. And so we have a chosen nation, someone that God decided out of all nations of the earth that he was going to put his love in a special way upon this nation, the nation of Israel. So they are the chosen ones. Okay, we're, we're relatively used to that, particularly as we think of the nation of Israel. Well, John 17 and other passages that we're going to look at make it clear that God is the one who's doing the choosing, both in the situation of choosing the nation of Israel out of all nations and in choosing individuals. So the father's work in salvation, point number one, first of all, is to choose. It's to choose I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 of John chapter 17. Verses 1 through 9. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, For I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. There is a lot in there. That is a very rich beginning to Jesus high priestly prayer. We call it. I want to look at just a couple of things in here. First of all, in verse two, you have given him authority over all flesh for the purpose of or to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The implication here is that the father has chosen some sinners out of the world that he has then given to Jesus so that Jesus would then give them eternal life. The father has chosen some. He's given them to the son and given the son a task, give them eternal life. What Jesus is saying there in in verse two, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you had given him. Look down at verse six. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. The father has some and he's given them to the son and given the son a task. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Verse nine, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. We see Jesus here not praying for the world. He does that. But here he's not. Here, here he's not. 
He's praying for those who belong to the Father and who have been given to the Son. And this is a, this is a topic, when, when you read in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, you'll see this, the word elect. That's the idea of to choose. And it's not a subject we talk about too often or really even understand. Often we read past it and we think elect, we read elect and not quite sure what that means. It's some sort of transaction, but we don't really, we don't really get it. And I think John 17 here is making a little bit clearer for us what's going on. Jesus is there praying, praying for his disciples, and he's praying for those who will become believers through the word of his disciples. And he says, Father, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They have believed, and I am keeping them and will give them eternal life. And so it's a, it's a subject that's going on here. Who, who's doing the choosing here? It's the Father doing the choosing. It's similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 22 and verse 14 when he said, many are called, but few are, are chosen. There's a broad call. We proclaim the gospel broadly. Many are called, few are chosen, few are chosen. Or similar to Mark 13 and verse 20 when talking about the, the tribulation. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So there again, we have the father doing the choosing. The father is, is the one who has chosen the elect, the elect. So a summary of the father's work, this father's sovereign work in salvation is that the father has chosen or elected some sinners to make his own and give them eternal life in Christ. All right. Pause that for a second and go back to the introduction where we talked about last week, where we discussed last week in man's condition, the condition of man's heart, sinful man, the unbeliever is morally unable to choose God. And so what will he always choose if left to himself? He will always choose to make himself king, not God. And so we're stuck in a situation where if a broad offer were made to all of mankind, a very generous offer, an extremely generous offer is made to all of mankind, who's going to accept it? Nobody. Not a single soul. That's what we talked about last week. Man's condition is such that regardless of what you offer him, he's going to be king. He's going to be king. And that would be the choice across the board. And so God, of course, knowing that's the situation, chooses some that he is going to save. Out of all that group that would reject him categorically, he chooses some that he's going to save. That's the Father's sovereign work in salvation. Secondly, not only is is it his job or his role in this to choose, but he does so without condition. Point B, without condition. Flip over to 2 Timothy, if you would. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Keep your finger here in John. Flip over to 2 Timothy 1. Verse 9. 
talking about God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Not because of our works, not because of something we contributed, but because of his own purpose and grace. There was no trace of merit that God saw in man that caused him to choose to save us. He saved us and he called us not because of our works. His reasons for choosing and his reasons for saving us, as we looked at last week, are all rooted in his own purpose and grace, rooted in himself. Philippians 1.29 says something similar. I'm going to turn there real quickly. Philippians 1.29. I'm going to write that down. It says this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Two things being granted there. Your belief and your suffering being granted, being given by the father. God didn't look from eternity past to see that who would believe. And then on the basis of that foreseen faith, choose to save that person. Paul says here in Philippians one, that even the faith exhibited by those who believe is a gift. It has been granted. It's from God. Acts thirteen forty eight. we ran across in our small group Bible study recently says something, something similar, Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed believed. And so what came first was the appointment. What came second was the belief. Even the faith was a gift. So this is a doctrine that we call election, more specifically, unconditional election unconditional because I didn't meet some kind of condition. I have no works to show. I have no works that might make God look at me kindly. Not only that, I don't have some faith. I didn't, God wasn't looking forward to see my faith. And then from back here said, okay, he's going to believe. Therefore he's one of the elect. No, even that faith is a gift. All of it's a gift from the beginning. And so there was no condition that I met such that God would choose to put his saving love on me in that way. Here's a summary of unconditional election. The father's salvation work before the foundations of the world was in choosing some according to no conditions, but by his own purpose, whom he marked out for redemption and gave to the son. So the father's sovereign role in the salvation of sinners is to choose unconditionally those whom he gives to the son to be redeemed. Now let's flip to John chapter six and look at the son's work, the son's work. John chapter six. The son's work is to redeem. Son's work is to redeem. Chapter six. And I'm going to read verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Again, this is a very rich passage, and this is a small portion of a larger, very rich passage. But I, I want to focus on just a couple of things here. First of all, right there in verse 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Absolutely everyone who comes to Christ will have these spiritual blessings. He promises life to everyone who will come to him, to anyone who will come to him. The offer is open. It is broad. It's wide. It's to everyone. Verse 36, but some have seen him and they haven't believed. Well, why is that? Why have some not believed? Verse 37. Jesus says that all that the father gives him will come to him. These people won't come to him and won't believe in him. These who haven't believed. The implication is that they are not of the group given by the father to the son. He said, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Look at verse 38 and 39 there. He came to accomplish the task that the father had sent him to do. That he should raise up on the last day all those that the father had given to him. The father sent him to save, to give eternal life to all of those that the father had elected before the foundations of the world. So he'd given him a task to do. To save all of those the father had given him. Verse 40. Again, he affirms that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and be raised up on the last day. So this is the work of the son is to take absolutely everyone that the father has given him, bring them to faith and deliver them to eternity as saved. That's the work of redemption that the son has. That's what he's doing. And that's what he's about. And that offer the offer, it starts off in verse 35, is made to absolutely everybody. But if we go back to last week in our, in our minds, who will choose that? Who will choose that offer? Absolutely no one except those the Father has chosen very specially to make alive. He's chosen to work in their hearts in a special way that they do come to the Son that's what he's saying here when he says, all that the father gives to me will come to me. They will, they will come to me because the father gave them to me and I'm going to deliver them whole and saved into eternity. So in summary of this portion here, absolutely anyone who comes to faith in Christ will be saved, but only those marked out by the father and given to the son would ever come to Christ in the first place. He has to do a very special act. Remember Ephesians 2? But you were dead. But you were dead. But God made you alive. You were dead and unresponsive and unable. But God made you alive and gave you faith. God does a very special thing. The Father sent the Son 
to redeem his chosen ones. Everyone whom the Father gives the Son will come to faith and be saved. The sovereign work of the Son is to redeem those given him by the Father. The second point is without exception. Without exception. Look back at verse 37 here in John 6. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's without exception. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's my task. That's my father's will. That's what I'm going to do. Without exception. Jesus tells us clearly that he will deliver safely into heaven absolutely everyone given him by the Father for salvation. Absolutely everyone who comes to faith in Christ does so because he was chosen by the Father and was given to the Son to save. This is a doctrine that's, that's, uh, it has a, a less popular name and a more popular name. Particular redemption is the one I, I particularly like. I think it's a little bit better title. The traditional one is called limited atonement. Why do you think people don't like that one? Because we think, oh, the offer is only being made to a few being limited only to a few. That's not what's intended by the title. What's intended by the title is that he absolutely and thoroughly saves those who have been elect. He does everything required in order for them to be redeemed. He doesn't make a broad general offer and then just hope that people will will come. He makes a broad general offer, hopes everyone comes, but then he has designated a few who are going to and will be redeemed completely without exception and eternally. Christ came into the world to secure the redemption of the elect. The son's sovereign work in salvation is to redeem those the father has given him and to do so without exception. Now let's turn back to John chapter three and look at the spirit's work, the spirit's work in this. First of all, the spirit's work is to save his work is to save John chapter 3, Jesus speaking with Nicodemus. They're having a very interesting discussion. I'm just going to read verses 3 through 8 of that discussion. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So a couple of verses, just a couple of things to point out here in our passage there in verse five, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now there's some discussion about whether being born of water means being born from your mother um, or whether it has something to do with baptism or whether it has something to do with the cleansing work of the spirit. That's not our topic here today, but unless one is born of the water, whatever that may mean, and the spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's the spirit who gives birth. Verse six, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, 
but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I pondered that and thought about that. What does he mean by that? It's like the wind. You, you hear the wind and you feel the effects of the wind. You know it's there. Where'd it come from? Where's it going? Don't know. We don't know. It's just there. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Someone gets saved. Where did that come from? I've been sharing the gospel with that guy for 10 years. I've shared every possible way I can, can think of. I've reasoned as best I can. I've loved as best I can. I've done all of this for 10 years. I've been praying for this person, been sharing with this person. And all of a sudden they get saved. They get, they're, they're born again. Where did that come from? I don't know. I didn't reason them into the kingdom. I didn't overcome their will in some way. I didn't, I didn't uh, present it in a, in a more palatable, more desirable fashion. What happened? Did he just finally come around? Did he wise up? Did he get smart? No. Something happened and he was born again. We don't know where it came from. When I think about my own testimony and think about when I got saved, I really doubt the guy who shared with me was thinking, oh, I'm really getting through to this guy. I can see it in his eyes and it's really, it's really going well. I was kind of had my arms crossed and was paying attention because I was polite and, I, and I, he was my friend. I wasn't really buying into what he said. And then a few days later, I believe that. It's true. Where did that come from? In myself, where did that come from? I didn't generate it. He didn't give it to me. I don't know. I see the effects. I feel it. I know it's true. Where did it come from? I don't know. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit, causing new birth. Causing new birth. There's not some logical thing that we can figure out or some persuasive uh, um, special thing that we can make happen that's going to bring that about. It's the work of the Spirit in a person's life. Think about your own conversion. Think about when you got saved. Was it a logical process? Okay, I, I, I believe there is a God, and then I believe that this thing is true, and I believe that this thing is true, and you got there step by step by step. That's possible. Some people are that way. That's possible. That wasn't my situation at all, and that's not what I see here. It's like the wind blowing. You feel it. You know it's there. You just don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. That's the Spirit's work. I want to read one other verse. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed, sanctified, justified by the Spirit. He's, he's the one who does the work. That's his work, is to bring salvation, to apply it to the person Secondly, he does so without fail. Flip over to Romans 8. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. Romans chapter 8. The Spirit does so without fail. He doesn't drop the ball. He doesn't forget someone. He doesn't miss somebody. He doesn't start and then not finish what he's doing. Romans 8. I'm going to read 28 uh, down through 32. Again, this is called the golden chain, and you'll see why. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to, the, to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, 
he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Those who are elect are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, etc. Those who are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ are called. And those who are called are justified. And those who are justified are glorified. From beginning to end, God is the one doing the acting. From all the way back, foreknowledge. All the way through to the end, glorification. He's the one doing the work. What I want us to focus especially on is the call. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. This is a little bit of what we talked about last week. Remember we talked about Lazarus, who was dead in the tomb, unresponsive. He wasn't going to be super obedient. You know, you come and tell him to move over there or clean his room or whatever. It's not going to happen because he's dead, right? He's unresponsive. He's beyond response. And so if I had walked up and said, Lazarus, get up, or someone given, given him some other instruction, he's not going to be obedient. He doesn't have what it takes to obey. But Jesus comes and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he causes life. That's the kind of call that's being talked about here. There is a sense in which we make a broad call with the gospel. Many are called. Many are called. We should call everybody. And in that sense, God calls everybody that the gospel goes to. The call is made far and wide to everyone without discrimination. Absolutely to everybody. Everybody needs to hear the gospel. We make that call. But there is some sense that's talked about here in Romans 8.30 in which he calls in a special way like he did Lazarus. And that call produces life. It produces life. Those whom he called, he also justified. In the book of Romans, how are people justified? How does justification happen? By faith. That's the central message of the whole book. Justification is by faith. It happens by faith, not by works, not by work, not by circumcision, not by keeping the law. Justification happens by faith again and again in the book of Romans, right? He says right here, those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he justified every single person he calls in this way responds with faith and in justification. It's a special call. just like Lazarus obeyed Lazarus came to life because Jesus spoke something that demanded he come to life and he came to life. That's the special call of God. And this is the work of the Spirit. This is what he does in applying salvation to those whom the Father has called. All right, so this is, called, this is a, a doctrine we call uh, irresistible grace. Could Lazarus have resisted Jesus when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth? No. He could not have resisted. Jesus commanded and spoke it and made it so. And so is the same with life. We read about it in Ephesians chapter 2. God made you alive. God made you alive. It's called irresistible grace or the efficacious call because it, it causes what it demands. I'll read a quote here from, from one author. The Holy Spirit never fails to bring to salvation those sinners whom he personally calls to Christ. 
He inevitably applies salvation to every sinner whom he intends to save. And it is, it is his intention to save all of the elect. So each member of the Trinity plays distinct roles in salvation. From the Father's election to the Son's redemption to the Spirit's effectual call, God has overcome our depraved and hopeless and helpless state in order to save sinners. So the question in your mind and the question in my mind often, why does he choose to save some and not others? That's the question that's on your mind. That's the question that's on my mind frequently. Why does he choose to save some and not others? We've looked at the depravity of man and seen that no, no offer made to man would overcome his central desire to be his own king. So any offer that's made that doesn't produce what it's offering is, is going to be rejected. It's going to pale in comparison to my desire to be king of my own life. That's what we looked at all last week. Man is that depraved. He's that unable spiritually, morally to respond. So an offer that's made that doesn't produce the result is going to be rejected. And so if you think about salvation, we're offering salvation to people. If it stopped there, no one would be saved. We would all reject it. You would have rejected it. You would live in rejection of it. That's what we looked at last week. That's the state of man's depravity. So God wants to save sinners. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to bring about life. What we're talking about today is his sovereignty and salvation. When he decides he's going to bring life. So he chooses some. He gives them life. The son redeems them. The spirit applies that salvation to them. And they're his children. They come to life. Okay, so he does that with some. Why doesn't he do that with everybody? The answer is I don't know why he doesn't do that with everybody. I don't know. I've thought about that. Eric Endicott has asked me that question 19 times. And I have tried every way I can. And the true answer, Eric, is I don't know. I don't know. Paul was asking a similar question in Romans 9. It's right about where we are. Romans 9 is a very difficult passage. There's a lot going on there. But he's, he's, he's thinking about it. He's asking the same question. And uh, his answer is to quote uh, Exodus 33 and verse 19. Here's what Exodus 33, 19 says. This is, this is in Romans chapter 9. I didn't write down the verse for some reason. Well, it's, it's Exodus 33, 19 anyway. Someone finds it, shout it out. Hey, verse 18? No, earlier. 15? No, earlier than that. No, it is, it is 15. You're right, it is verse 15. You know, verse 15 in, in chapter 10 is different than verse 15 in chapter 9. <laughs> hey, you get all kinds of information here, okay? Chapter 10 is different than chapter 9. He quotes from Exodus 33, 19, and this is what he says. In pondering the same kind of question, why does he choose some and not others? Here's his answer. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then a little bit later, this is what he says. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now, the first probably 20 times I read that, I thought that was Paul saying, sit down and be quiet and let God be God. That's what I thought he was saying. 
And I was, you know, I wasn't satisfied with the answer, but I, I can be obedient, sit down and be quiet and let God be God. But I think there's more to it. I think he's giving the answer. I think he's giving the answer here. When he says in Exodus 33, 19, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's talking about something very special. Think of that statement back in Exodus 33. What are the criteria for God's choosing to be merciful? Just within Exodus 33, 19, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Compassion, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Where is it, where is it rooted? Some, some, some kind of criteria beyond himself? Something outside of himself? No. It's rooted in himself. It's very similar to Exodus chapter 3. We talked about this a while back when we were talking about God's independence. What's God's name? I am who I am. I exist because I exist. I do things because I do things. Not because I am serving something beyond me. Not because I'm responding to some outside stimulus that I am beholden to or bound to obey. I do what I do because I am who I am. That's the statement that he's making in Exodus chapter 3. That's the same thing he's saying in Exodus 33. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy because I am sovereign God. I'm not bound to something beyond me. I'm not constrained to something beyond me. Chapter 9 here is difficult enough that John Piper wrote a whole book on it called The Justification of God. And here's, I'm quoting from him in this. He says, it is the glory of God and his essential nature to dispense mercy, but also wrath on whomever he pleases, apart from any constraint originating outside his own will. This is the essence of what it means to be God. This is his name. He is self-defining. So we ask the question, and we'll continue to ask the question, why didn't he choose all? Why did he choose some and not all? The answer is still, I don't know. But it wasn't because he was following some external criterion. It was because he is God, and from his own will, he determined that's what he wanted to do. That is wrapped up in what it means to be God, is that he does what he wants to do. I don't know why, and I don't get it. But it's who he is. And so we go back to Paul's answer. Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? I want to close with this. This is uh, J.I. Packer. Summarizing what we've talked about uh, this morning, this is what he says. There is really only one point to be made in the field of soteriology or the study of salvation. The point that God saves sinners. God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, Three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people. The Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of Father and Son by renewing. God saves, does everything first to last that is involved in bringing man from death in sin to life in glory. 
plans, achieves, and communicates redemption, calls and keeps, justifies, sanctifies, glorifies, saves sinners, men as God finds them guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger to do God's will or better their spiritual lot. God saves sinners. And when I think about that and I think about this truth and I think about the people in my life that I've been praying for and trying to share with for years to no avail. And I think, well, just too tough a nut to crack, I guess. Too far lost, too far gone. God is sovereign and there is no one too lost. And there was no one too far gone. That person you've been praying for and sharing with and weeping over and agonizing over for all of these years is not too lost. When he decides to give life and save sinners, they have life and they're saved. I need that encouragement this morning. Some of you have been praying for people. Those people might be in here. They are not too lost. They are not beyond the reach of God's salvation. I have no clue who the elect are. No clue. My job and yours is to spread broadly, to call broadly and consistently. I have no clue who the elect are. So I'm going to tell everybody and we'll see what God does because God saves sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we...